0: The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Clean Coders and its employees. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Clean Coders podcast. This week, I'm talking to Chris Powers. Chris, do you want to say hello?
1: Hey, everybody. How are we all doing? Hopefully, well, here's the thing. I think I know how we're all doing. We're all having a rough time right now. So uh, hopefully everybody's hanging in there. You know,
0: hopefully this time, (laughs) this conversation will be worth your time, I'm sure. Yeah, definitely. In fact, you know, as we're recording this, the situation changes so fast that I hesitate to say, you know, knowing that this might get released in two, maybe three weeks, that the situation has changed. But I think there's going to be, there are going to be some gems in here that apply to everybody anyway. Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv slash jobbook. That's devchat.tv slash jobbook. We were talking about just being resilient through hard times and, you know, finding things that we can be certain of in the uncertainty and things like that. And we run into this in code all the time, right? Where it's like, I'm not sure exactly how this is going to go or how this is going to work, or I'm pulling in a library that I've never used before or things like that. And so we see it both ways, but I, I think there's some approach to this that, that probably spans both. I don't know if that's what you know, where you're coming from with some of this, but... Yeah, yeah. You know, uncertainty is
1: something that's really been on my mind lately for fairly obvious reasons. Because right now, uh, given COVID-19, given the, the economy, given what's happening to people's jobs. I think we just had another 6.6 million people on the unemployment list last week, and it was about the yeah. same the previous week. There's a huge amount of uncertainty right now. Now, I think there's always a lot of uncertainty. Any day has a fair amount of it. And certainly right. in programming, we, en- you know, we encounter uncertainty all the time. But boy, is it palpable right now. I am uncertain when my kids will get to go back to school, or if they'll ever <laughs> go back to school, or if I'm going to be a homeschool teacher for the rest of my life. I feel like there is uncertainty there. And frankly, that's a whole lot less uncertainty than the person who just got laid off. I've got friends who are working for big companies, and all of a sudden, they just laid yeah. a whole lot of folks off. It's It sucks. A lot of uncertainty. People obviously are worried about their health. They're worried about the the paycheck. They're worried about what the government is doing. So, you know, in uncertain times, there's certainly ways that we can approach trying to create some certainty and not, maybe not a huge amount of certainty, but I think we start to appreciate in uncertain times how far a little bit of certainty can take us, even if we're largely unsure what's going on. So, when I think about it at the, at the code level, like you were kind of alluding to earlier, I think about like, let's say approaching that big legacy system. That's always an experience that is full of uncertainty kind of at that code level. Oh, yeah. Maybe yeah. it's a system that you have some familiarity with, or maybe you're like a consultant or someone who is getting in for the very first time. Huge amount of uncertainty. We're not sure what it does. We're not sure if the thing that it does is correct or not. We're not sure what the intent of the author may have been at one point. A lot of uncertainty. And when I think about something like uh, Michael Feather's uh, book, the, was it Working in Legacy Code or? Working Effectively with Legacy working Code. Working Effectively with Legacy Code. Thank you. You know, which is is all about this. How do you work with, you know, legacy code? And I think that you could really just replace the word uncertain code instead of, of legacy code in there.
0: Yeah, well, his definition is, is that it's a, uh a system or a, a piece of software that tests, right? And so the uncertainty comes from not knowing what state or shape it's in because you don't have anything to define it.
1: You have your own observations,
0: <laughs> yep. which you know is kind of based on your own knowledge,
1: which is going to be pretty thin, right? And in terms of the knowledge that is baked into the system, it is suspect. And especially if there are no tests, then it's suspect. I've been thinking a lot about tests as facts in a system. Uh, a test tells you something definitive about the system. I think about the the concerns that I've heard some people voice about unit testing, which is that like well, all unit testing gives you is it 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 tells you that the thing you thought to check if it worked does work, and that means the things you didn't think to check you don't know if they work and sure that's certainly true and if your goal was like certainty in order to work inside of a code base, then that might be a problem, right? But where are we really in most systems? Usually, you know, we're crawling through the desert just looking for one oasis, for one fact, for one piece of information that will give us certainty in a particular aspect, right? And if only we could find that. And so, you know, Michael Feathers suggests you create that. Those examples, you think about the maybe a part of a legacy system as this black box, and what you do is you kind of like start to build this API onto the end of it, and you test the heck out of it, and you make Mm -hmm. it clear about the facts of what's happening in that, and you create certainty. And it's only certainty about that one little piece, but that's a lot more certainty than you had before. Now, when you start to build layers on top of uh, that abstraction, those layers can have additional knowledge and additional facts that are letting you know where you stand. They're letting you know how that part works. Right. And you start to abstract away whatever mystery was in that original black box. And so I, I see that as a way of like injecting facts into the system. And those facts, you don't need every fact. You can get pretty far even with a subset of all the facts, but every one that you have is going to make the next step easier and clearer, and make you more effective in understanding the system. I like the idea as well of of code base as as a knowledge base. Right now I think of I think if I mention knowledge base probably things like confluence or a wiki or or maybe like right. external documentation things like that come to mind and those are right they're all derivations they're all kind of like snapshots of knowledge about the system. The challenge as we all know is that those things become out of date very very quickly. They were facts at a point in time, but they got stale very quickly. And until you have somebody who cleans that up, updates that, you know, it's, it, it might be no good. Or in, at worst, it might even make somebody understand the wrong thing about the system because it's outdated. So I think about the code base then and thinking about ways of like leveraging doc- documentation or literate programming in order for that code base to act as a knowledge base And what's amazing about it is that it is executable in a way that most of our documentation is not. Right. And you think about, yeah, and you think about tests and some of what things like RSpec or behavior-driven development we're trying to do in terms of making very literate tests that we're going to read like documentation and be executable. And the executable part actually ends up being the most important part because it will tell you immediately whether or not what it says it does is really what it does. And I think those same principles can be applied to our implementation code as well. How can we make that code as readable, and legible, as you know, executable facts as possible?
0: I, I like it. I'm just wondering, okay, you know, we're, we're talking about these ideas. How do you actually do it?
1: Yeah. You know, and I think that when, when we go back to some of the clean code principles, we, we've got some tools there. So I think about modularizing our code perhaps using single uh, responsibility principle and thinking about how can we make sure that we're reducing the number of responsibilities inside of any one piece of code, right? We know that it makes it easier to understand. But I think like in this case, I would clarify it as saying that we are creating classes, creating abstractions that are modeling facts, so we know, for example, that if you have a, a controller or some kind of a resource API code that has a bunch of logic jammed inside of it, we know that it's difficult to understand what's happening because you've got HTTP logic, you've got model logic, maybe some database logic, you've got other kind of conditional logic all smooshed together, and they don't come across as strong facts, as legible facts. As we peel those apart into some of the separate layers And we have our business logic facts in one place. We've got our our HTTP interaction facts in one place and our model facts in one place. They become more meaningful and more useful. And in fact, the tests that are testing those will will be much more fact-based as well. They'll be able to tell us one thing about the system. And then the next test will tell us one thing about the system. And together, they tell us a lot about the system. So proper modularity goes a long ways towards helping it be legible and being very fact-oriented in the way that we're we're taking this code and making it a, a knowledge repository.
0: So that makes sense. So, uh, you know, we're talking about breaking up the code, getting tests around the code, you know, finding ways to make it so that it's easy to follow and easy to consume. And mm-hmm. therefore, it is kind of a knowledge base for the code. I've heard people talk about you know, the code being the ultimate knowledge base, right? Because you try putting it into a wiki and then you forget to update the wiki and now you're out of date. Same with comments. Your tests don't lie because you run them and, you know, so unless you quit running your tests, which I've seen happen. So I guess, I guess what I'm wondering is, Having the test be a knowledge base, it, it, it feels almost like a pipe dream to me, right? I've never actually <laughs> seen it in practice, right? Yeah. I, I've seen some parts of code that, you know, I went and looked at it and it was easy to consume. But for the most part, if you didn't come into it with some kind of domain knowledge and some knowledge about the way that it, it's approached, then at the end of the day, you're going to have to go talk to somebody. Somebody's going to have to walk you through it. Or you're gonna to have to figure it out the hard way, like you talked about before, by putting some kind of black box or test harness around it, and then kind of working your way through it
1: yeah, uh, it is idealistic. I'll absolutely say that, and I you know I would say mo- most code bases that I've worked with have not exactly you know worked that way, no. but I do think that theres it's not boolean it's not all or nothing right right. I do think that any steps in this direction in the same way that like with the with Michael Feathers example, even just making one clean abstraction you could build off of created uh, a lot of relief and a lot of knowledge for the people in that space, right? <laughs> the same goes for the codebases that we have, right? right? Starting somewhere, laying something down and being intentional about the, the knowledge and the facts that we have there, it starts to produce value from day one. Now, it may only be value in one spot and may only help some of the people who happen to be working in that area, but it is producing value on day one. I do also think that there is some, I've seen some really neat techniques in a few areas. uh, Elixir, I think, has always had it. Python has had this for a while. I think they usually get referred to as like test docs, which is so code comments that then actually have like a a snippet of code that gets executed as part of the test suite. And so you can at least know that the, whatever code examples you have inside of your comments in the code, they get imported into the test suite and executed, and you at least know that those things were correct. And that's uh, it kind of captured my imagination because it's a really neat way of getting those examples super close to the code itself while still making it executable and something that you can work with.
0: Yeah, I like that. I've always kind of wanted that on some of the other systems that I have worked in because, you know, Ruby for a long time, it had a system where it would generate docs off of those comments. You know, it's pretty common in most languages. Mm. But yeah, I wanted the, and so, you know, here's the code example. And yes, it must execute as expected. Yep.
1: And it's, uh, you know, it works for some things, not for others, right? Like yeah. uh, if you were in a Rails app, you know, it's not going to load up the database and like <laughs> do uh, do all of this stuff in order to do like a lot of rich logic. Mm-hmm. But if you've got smaller methods, and they are, especially if it's more of a functional style. And you're able to show how this goes in and that comes out. Works pretty well. Not perfect, but right. again, I mean, none of this stuff is perfect, for goodness sakes. It's mm-hmm. programming. But these are, these are steps that we can take and tools that we can leverage in order to be more intentional about baking in facts into right. what we're doing.
0: And some of it's going to boil down to, yeah, the facts, right? The facts of the code and, and how well we can tease that out. But a lot of it just comes down to good communication. So you have like naming and structure and things like that. You know, you talked about modularity a, a minute ago. But yeah, you know, how, how do how do those ideas play into this as well? I think consistency is
1: certainly a way of reducing how much uncertainty there may be inside of code base. Because by well by its very nature if we're being consistent whether in naming, whether it's in the the structure that our application takes, mm-hmm. that is going to give us uh, a map to right. understand. If we understand this section, we understand that section, the other section, right? And it reduces the opportunities that we have for uncertainty, which is great. And certainly if we're in a world that is very uncertain, if we can find patterns or if we can establish patterns, and again, you always have to start with one, (laughs) you always have to just start with doing something. And then I think you're right when it comes to, uh, we get to the team level, we're talking about communication. We're talking about mm-hmm. how can we make sure that this group of people that we're working together to create something that is more consistent rather than less consistent over, right. over time uh, and figuring out how to take that first step. And the first step is tricky. There was an KCD comic in which someone says like, there are, oh my gosh, there's 10 standards, competing standards for doing this. I'm going to create the standard that unifies them all. And then the last frame <laughs> is, there are now 11 competing standards. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, yep. this, this is always a problem, right? It's uh, taking the first step is never, never quite enough because mm-hmm. uh, we can take the first step by ourselves. The second step takes a community. Second step takes a group in order to agree on that as the thing that's going to be consistent moving forward. Mm-hmm. Which is it's much, much trickier and frankly usually requires the the soft skills or the communication skills, maybe some kind of team process in order to identify the need right. to identify like kind of prototype out at least one way that we could do it. And maybe a team wants to prototype out a few so that you can actually look at competing ideas and decide which yeah. one comes out on top. You know, and then figuring out how, how do we make that decision and then move forward in a way where nobody is going to be, I told you sewing, nobody's mm-hmm. going to be holding their veto card in their pocket, just waiting to pull it out and say like, Oh, I knew this was this was gonna suck long term, right? Yeah. Um, we can't move forward
0: as a team with this kinda well, and to be perfectly honest, and and this is something out of agile development is that you know, you try kind of the next right step and then you figure out if that was the next right step. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And yep. so, yeah, you know, that's one thing that I see with some of this, especially in teams is, yeah, you know, you mentioned somebody pulling out the veto card or, you know, they're, they're in it just to be right about it. And it turns out that, yeah, realistically, what we're talking about is we're going to try this, we're going to see how it works, and then we're going to move ahead. You yep. know, some of the things you're talking about reminds me a little bit of like, linting or you know things like that you know certain code standards is that is that a, a level or area you're talking about or are you talking about more high level stuff
1: i mean I, I think it could be i think it could take a number of shapes uh, so something like linting is yeah it, you know how do we how do we create an environment like a code environment uh, a development environment in which we feel like we're going to uh, be effective that we're going to get feedback from our code that's going to tell us how things are going, and that's going to help to enforce some, some standardizations. So yeah, linting, and that's something that over the last few years has just become obvious <laughs> to teams. I've mm-hmm. yet to see anyone who's like, yeah, the whole linting thing, and eh, eh, that's a big I think everybody realized that, oh, this is, this is a great idea, right? That wasn't always the case, though. I think there were a lot of people who were unsure. And so you look at a situation where there is uncertainty, And there's as much, if not more, uncertainty at the team level and the process level as there is at the code level. And so one of the ways I like to think about getting through uncertainty when it comes to people and process and team is to think about experimentation. At a previous company, I ran the group that was doing experimentation for several years. And so the idea of hypotheses and tests and collecting data and then like coming full circle on it and making decisions based on that was always deeply ingrained from a product perspective to understand how can we A, B test changes that we make to our mm-hmm. products and to our websites in order to get you know, to better places using the data to drive that. And I think it's just as applicable in the softer side of things, uh, with right. our teams to use hypotheses and experiments in order to like maneuver our way through the uncertainty and discover certainty at the end. One that comes to mind is that, you know, let's see here, six months ago on my teams, I structured, did, kind of did a reorg with my engineering teams. And the approach that we took was that we were going to have five teams that were not Directly tied to any particular part of the domain. They were not directly tied to owning any particular code base or part of the code base. Oh, interesting. I, I know. And it's it was a little countercultural, frankly, from other teams that I've been on. What I'd seen in, in past teams was I'd seen that when there's a a charter for a team that's like own this part of the domain or own these code bases, mm-hmm. you see siloization, you yeah. see people becoming specialists. And you see code bases that you have to be a specialist in to get anything done. People almost have the Stockholm Syndrome, and they get so used to the rough edges, they get so used to the problems with the code base, that they actually don't get solved. It's just that the team that specializes in it becomes more specialized and is effective in that code base. And meanwhile, it is impenetrable to anybody else to get in there and try changing something. So... I didn't want that for my teams. I wanted right. us to stay far away from that. And I said, well, what if we tried a more general approach? Everybody would kind of, we wanted to be able to attack the most important business problems we had, rather than the most important business problem in my particular code base, which really right. might be priority number 15 in the list well, of yeah. actual business priorities, right? So I thought it was a great idea. And I, I, still, I still do think that there's a lot of merits about that idea. We tried it, but we definitely approached it as, as a hypothesis and experiment because I said, look, we haven't actually done this before. We don't really know if this is going to work or not, but we feel good enough about it to give it a try. And so we did and we pushed forward. And what we ended up learning over the last six months was that while we could shift teams around, we hadn't. We actually found mm-hmm. that the, the problems that we needed to solve as a business were consistent enough that they, they didn't change wildly and they didn't require teams changing domains. So they still were kind of like in their areas just because there was still plenty of work to do in those areas. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, we found that we had kind of like a, a bug rotation and a cleanup rotation that was meant to have each team working across everything. We found mm-hmm. that that worked terribly. It was really bad right. because everybody was trying really hard to uh, get the knowledge they needed to be effective across uh, an SOA across the service-oriented architecture. Mm-hmm. It was just a lot. It was hard, and I think that ultimately we ended up realizing that you know what, there was like some academic merit maybe to that original idea, but for these teams in this time, it wasn't quite working. And so, you know, we we circled the wagon. You know, we've been retrospecting on this. Mm-hmm. We we didn't formally collect data, but the way that people feel about things and the way that people generally have a sense for how effective they were or were not is data and hearing that feedback from the team was like, all right, we gave it a shot and we, we came full circle and now we're doing something different. And I redefined the charters uh, of our teams back to something Mm -hmm. a little more traditional. Right. Um, So like that's, that was just one example where using an experimental mindset uh, can be applied to the organization, to Mm -hmm. the technologies, to the ways that we interact with each other on, on a team, the way that we do our agile process and that's one of the reasons why I love retrospectives, is because retrospectives generally give us a framework for saying, "There's a pain point. I've got an idea for how we could approach this problem." Right. Um, a lot of times, they get called action items in a retrospective. One thing that uh, I learned from Alistair Coburn that I liked a lot was he had he had come in and done a workshop with us, and he referred to them as "try thises." <laughs> yep, <laughs> which is a little <laughs> clunky of a language, but he would say like. Let's, out of a retrospective, let's have some try this's. Yep. And I loved that term because it oozes with uncertainty. Right. And yet drives us towards certainty. And it acknowledges to the whole team that we don't know if this is actually the right way to solve the problem, but it's something we're going to try. And by trying it, we will create certainty. And the next mm-hmm. retrospective, we're going to talk about how it worked and if it was right or if we have a new set of try thises. That we want right. to, to do at that point. And that's a beautiful way of being able to address uncertainty, not have that bravado leadership. This is the way forward. And then you're wrong. But saying as a team, we're not exactly sure but this is our best shot. Let's try it. Let's see what happens. And mm-hmm. we're going to be honest with each other
0: once we get two weeks in, four weeks right. in, and then you know, continue to steer the ship. Yeah, that makes sense. It's interesting, though, because to some people, it sounds like you're creating more uncertainty by trying things, right? Because it's we don't know how this is going to work out. Well, that's definitely
1: true. I think the, the, what is certain in that situation is pain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we do know that something is not working. And so we're willing to right. leave the certainty of something that certainly does not work go into the realm of uncertainty, knowing that we might find something better. We might find something even worse. I mean, that could right. happen, right? But knowing that if we're iterative about this, we're going to be be learning, changing what we're doing based on those learnings, and eventually chart a course to a better place.
0: Yeah. And that's that's the thing, right? Is that some of the uncertainty is going to be around, I don't know how this is going to turn out, but some of the uncertainty is going to be there anyway. And so, you know, you're building up a resiliency toward some of the things that may come your way.
1: Mm-hmm. And so
0: by experimenting in all these different ways, you may be prepping yourself for something that comes down the line.
1: Yeah. You know, it does a few beautiful things. That, that included, I think it builds trust within the team. Because mm-hmm. when you go through one of these cycles, it builds trust. Because think about the decision-making process for a team. If it's a high-stakes thing, like let's say you've got this big Big project. And up front, you have to decide on an architecture or a technology. And you're going to kind of be locked into that. And you've right. got developers who maybe have strong opinions and they are differing. And at the end of the day, like we got to figure out something, but it's going to be a hard thing to change in the future. And anytime that you're in a situation like that, it's high stakes, it's mm-hmm. high risk, it's very difficult. <laughs> the chances of getting it right are are kind of low. And that sucks, right? So yeah. then it's a question of, well, are there other ways that we might be able to make decisions that are lower stakes? How hard is it to walk through the door and then come back through the door again, like walk back out the door? Is yeah, it a hard. one-way door or is it a two-way oh, yeah. door? Maybe it's one of That's those you know, rotating doors. <laughs> because yep. if, if it is one of those, the team, all of a sudden, everyone's going to calm down a little bit the stress is going to come down, the cortisones are going to kind of fade away. And we can say like, hey, I'll tell you what, let's, let's lock in for a month. Let's lock in for two weeks. And that's the level of risk rather than trying to say, let's lock in for six months or a year or forever <laughs> in some of these giant technology decisions, right? Right. And so we think about, for example, the idea of spikes in, in your kind of scrummy, agile workflows. The idea of a spike is this. It's like, are we willing to bet a week or two to try something, to know that we're going to throw right. it away? It's a learning endeavor. <laughs> and that learning then should reduce the risk of the next decision we make. And so we're going to pay for certainty. And I actually yeah. think that's really difficult in some organizations. I've, I've been in organizations that don't understand that you have to pay for certainty. Ask any team that's expected to like, come up with perfect estimates like that, <laughs> which is terrible. And if you're on that team, I'm sorry, right? But what's, what we're asking for is we're saying, give me certainty, right? but I don't want to pay for it. I'm, I'm paying your paycheck. Apparently, that, that should be mm-hmm. enough to get a right. perfect estimate. When in reality, well, if you want a perfect estimate, you'd have to pay to build the entire thing. And then once yes. you've built it, you would know how long it took. And that's the perfect estimate. Yeah. All right, well, that's, that's that silly. Let's work our way back and decide mm-hmm. how much do we want to pay. And depending on how much we pay, that gives us a certain level of certainty. Right. And then people start to realize that, oh, maybe perfect certainty is not actually what we need in order to move forward with our work, in mm-hmm. order to like, actually still be able to, to invest and make bets on right. the next thing that's right for our company. But if we can't have those conversations about what we have to pay to discover certainty in our work, then things just don't go well. And usually right. it's engineering that takes the brunt of it, right? As engineering gets kicked around because mm-hmm. there's unfair uh, expectations about that. And as engineers, we have uh, an opportunity and, frankly, an obligation to make it clear you know, the, the clarity and the certainty comes at a price and then we can make some yep. good
0: business decisions about how badly we want to pay that. Yep. Or how much we want to pay in order to mitigate some of the uncertainty. Yeah, exactly. How much risk are
1: we willing to live yep. with versus what are the risks that we absolutely want to, to crush? Yep. And I mean, that's, that's kind of the basis of Scrum itself, right? I mean, it yep. was like back in the day, we are doing these enormous waterfall projects and huge amount of risk and huge amount of uncertainty, despite the fact that it was disguised as certainty mm-hmm. through giant technical documents, right? Right. And then it was like, well, could we, could we be certain about two weeks? And frankly, that's hard enough. It's hard enough to be two, yes. certain about two weeks. But the goal of having a deliverable after two weeks was that we would be certain that we would have something. We would right. have a thing. And then if all of a sudden we jumped off to another project or totally pivoted or, or did whatever, mm-hmm. we at least had the certainty that we would have something. And that's a lot better than getting, you know, months into a a six month project and still not actually having a concrete deliverable because we're still in full uncertainty Mm -hmm. agile delivery gives us certainty piece by piece uh, and that's a really great thing
0: early in my career i figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't mostly by trial and error i created a system that i used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer Well, the other thing that I see, you, know, you mentioned Scrum in particular, you know, and Scrum has the estimation meetings and the, the stand-up meetings and you know, some of the other things that you do as part of a Scrum process. And all of those essentially give you the opportunity to be confronted by the uncertainty when you're doing what you're doing, right? So mm-hmm. when you're doing the estimate, if there's a lot of uncertainty, then you're going to have a longer discussion about what the uncertainty is and what you're willing to do in order to make that uncertainty go away you know and some of it's just going to be nobody's ever done this before so we just don't know how long it's going to take but some of it may be we don't understand the process or we don't understand the business value or we don't understand the you know mm-hmm. what is actually needed or you know what we don't understand what the solution actually looks like right and so you can pay a little bit of price to do some research and you know just have that hanging out there And work on some of the other things that you're more certain of. Or if it's something that's kind of emergency level, it's okay. But we have a lot of uncertainty around this and you can run it right back up the chain, right? Absolutely. Your your stand-up meeting, same thing, right? You stand up and you're like, hey, I started working on this problem. We all thought it was going to be like this, but it turns out there's this other thing we encountered something that we didn't even know was something we should have been uncertain about. But now we can directly address the problem. And then the next day we can follow up on it and continue to follow on and and have success with it. And then with our retrospectives, we have the retrospectives and we talk about solutions that help us mitigate the uncertainty. We've already talked about that.
1: Yeah, I think the... I mean, Scrum, it's, it's got its pros and its cons. Uh, yeah, you know, I've, all do. I've been on more more bad Scrum teams and good Scrum teams. Uh, <laughs> but I think the... I think a big miss on the teams that that don't get it right, or where it ends up being an abusive tool rather than a tool that is bringing people together, is missing the uh, the Scrum values. I I did quote Scrum for years before I happened to stumble upon the fact there are Scrum values. I'd never even seen them before; they were never even referenced. (laughs) Yeah, there's five of them. I can't rattle them all off the top of my head, but there's two of them that come to mind because they are the two that stand out to me as the most important and the most missing on scrum teams that I've had in the past. And that is courage and respect. And courage, like, it's oh kind of boy. funny. We don't, we don't really talk about courage a lot. Like, it's kind of a, a, a funny thing. But when we're talking about uncertainty, we're talking about venturing out into the unknown. Now yeah. I have a Disney song and, playing in my head. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> and, and leading people into the unknown, uh-huh. right? To some extent, maybe engineering is leading other business units into the unknown as we explore right. this. It t- takes courage to admit what we don't know. It yep. takes courage to admit the uncertainty, because it's so easy to want to like, you know, make a few assumptions. Make it a little bit, mm-hmm. do something in order to create a faux sense of certainty. And everybody's really happy about it, right? At first, right. everybody loves hearing you talk as if there is certainty around this until all of a sudden, oh my gosh, it falls apart because there wasn't. It takes yeah. courage to talk about the uncertainty and it takes respect. In order for people to realize that you are still a professional, in fact, you are more of a professional, by calling out the things you don't know and the things that you can't do or the things that you're not sure about, the fact that that uncertainty exists as a real business risk, right. it takes respect for that to be like, received and for people to be held in the right esteem and for people to be believed, right? There needs to be respect from the uh, the product owner to the engineers. That when the engineers uh-huh. say there's uncertainty there, they're just like, eh, that sounds like whining. Yep. And there also needs to be respect from the engineers to the, to the uh, uh, you know, the business owner, or the product owner, when they say like, I think this is an acceptable risk or yep. they say like, Actually, this isn't. And we, like, can we can we pivot because this is a real problem, or, or whatever that might be. It goes both ways. Yep. Um, but boy, if you're missing courage and you're missing respect, and you're trying to get through uncertainty, you're going to have a bad time, a real yeah. bad time. But we have to foster that in our teams and that experimental mindset that I talked about. Those small cycles where we connect, we 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 figure out where we're headed, we see if it worked, we acknowledge what worked and what didn't, mm-hmm. and we do it again. Every one of those cycles builds trust. And trust is what makes courage and respect possible.
0: Well, all of this, it's funny because I pulled up the scrum values. The other ones are commitment, focus, and openness. Right. And to be perfectly honest, um, the only one that doesn't drive directly toward trust is focus, in my opinion. You've mm, got the commitment. Sure. And if the, if the team and the leadership are not committed, if, if you can't be open, and you know the respect and courage lead to that openness right so i mean they they all play together in the same sandbox and i mean these are just values for good teamwork anyway because if your team doesn't trust you i mean you're just not going to get as much done because they're going to be playing defense part of the time if you don't have the courage to go try things this reminds me a little bit i play uh, board games with a bunch of friends and my wife's favorite board game is pandemic Mm. and Sometimes what happens very, a little on the nose at this point, very apropos. <laughs> yeah, right. I didn't even think about that, but anyway. So we play, and it's a cooperative game. And I, I when we play, it's funny because the first time I did it, I think my wife looked at me like, "What are you talking about?" But I looked at my, I have a crazy idea, <laughs> right? And you know, it's like if you move here and you move here, and we do this and we do that, then you know, then we can then we can win, or then we can solve the problem. And if you don't have that open environment, if you don't know that everybody's committed to the same goals, if you're not an open place where everybody is welcome to throw out ideas, even if they're half-baked, you're just not going to get there. And, and it's all about trust. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think you nailed that because the teams that I struggled the most on were the teams where I felt like the trust didn't exist.
1: Yeah, and frankly, I think the acknowledgement of uncertainty is a really important tool for building that trust because yep. if we believe there's a lot of certainty, then we're gonna have pretty hard expectations and pretty mm-hmm. like hard understanding of the physics at play, like the way the things work, and and have very like mechanical understandings of each other. Right. Now that's not the real world. The real world is soaked in uncertainty and it's organic, it's biological, it's like, you know, things are are always are always changing. And so Given that, trust ends up being, you know, the, it, it's, it's the money that we spend in order to get things done in mm-hmm. today's organizations, really, more so than anything else. I mean, if it's not that, then it's some kind of bizarre sense of top-down control or something along those lines, some kind of a hierarchy desk pounding. And that's, you know, yeah, that, that doesn't even make sense in today's world, right? I, I'm also a huge pandemic fan, fun fact. Really, all co-op games. I found that after my wife nearly left me after I whomped her in Canasto once, we realized that the <laughs> competitive gaming may not be great for the marriage, but I've I've loved co-op gaming for a, a long time because of, of what you're talking about and because it actually like, the it's the way that I want to interact with people. It's right. the way that I want to engage people is shoulder to shoulder. How do we solve right. these problems together? And yeah, how can we take a shot and see if it hits and like think about the risks and, and rewards together and decide where we want to play it safe versus where we want to really go for it. It's it's super cool thing. And really, it's it's so relevant to our world and becoming much more relevant compared to competition. You know, mm-hmm. you think about years gone by where the idea of like competition was the driving force in business. And that's, right. that's not where it is anymore because the problems have gotten much more more. Complex and the opportunities are much more nuanced, and we actually end up seeing that uncertainty or variance is a huge driver for right. opportunity in our businesses, in our lives, in our careers. You know, the I, I kind of think about you know in these in these terrible times, I mean, mm-hmm. not not to make light at all of the situation, but you know, I think about Zoom, which we are using right now in order to right. record this podcast and think about the number of people who had never heard of zoom before and now are using it for their e-learning using it to hang out with <laughs> friends using it for church groups yeah. for others social groups right and and i think about what was <laughs> I, I would love to hear from zoom engineers about like what the last uh, few weeks or months have been like
0: you oh, know yeah. it
1: seemed like they were ready they were ready on the engineering side in a way that other organizations perhaps were not. Because it's like, yeah. why, why is Zoom the one who caught the wave? Why wasn't it Google Hangouts? Why wasn't it Blue Jeans? Why wasn't it any, any yeah. number of the uh, solutions that are out there? And I'm sure that part of it was readiness. They had uh-huh. the ability to scale in a way perhaps that other folks didn't. And they had, I'm going to assume, invested in the engineering in such a way that they had no idea that this wave was coming. Right. But they where they were actually ready for it, which is is remarkable. We actually find opportunity in variance. You hear that about like financial markets as well. Like uh-huh. when when investors make a lot of money is actually when there's more variance rather than less variance, because that's when it right. gets interesting. That's when there's a lot of of opportunities. And I think that when it comes to even our our careers, variants like right now, some people are experiencing some very painful variants of of being laid off, of being furloughed, of just having job uncertainty. You know, is is there at least a silver lining of opportunities in order to hone your craft, in order to like be able to focus on what's that next career step any number of of things, right? Because for as many companies, at least for us programmers, who we're super lucky, obviously, compared to many other industries that are just having an incredibly difficult time, but there's a lot of new opportunities and actually growth in some areas uh, in markets in the same way that other
0: markets are having a really difficult time or letting people go. Yeah. Well, one other thing just to put in mm -hmm. there is that, you know, again... A lot of people I'm talking to have some uncertainty even there, right, is that their their workplace doesn't know how to work, you know, work remotely. And so they're either going to go through a whole bunch of pain figuring it out, or the company may just let them go and then, you know, hire them back when they get around to it. Or some folks, I, I saw somebody tweet on Twitter and it was like, look, I've been doing this for 20 years. This is the first year I've ever gotten a pay cut. Mm -hmm. You know, I've seen a bunch of other people that, yeah, have just been laid off, right? And it seems like, especially in some of the smaller businesses or like the in-person training businesses and things like that, where your business was reliant on people showing up, you know, even though we're all in the development career, it was kind of a weird place. And so at the same time, you know, to create certainty, you know, can you bone up your skills? Can you, maybe you can write a book and maybe you have a few hundred dollars coming in every month. Or you could create a course or you could go and try and become an author for Pluralsight or similar. I mean, there are all kinds of options out there. And and I love going back to the ideas that we talked about, you know, that experimentation, you know, go try one, right? Yeah. Go try one out and see if, you find that you like being in front of the camera doing the video course or you like being in front of the microphone doing a podcast or you, you really enjoy working on that side project that you've put off forever that may turn into a revenue source. I mean, th- yeah. there are so many options here that we have because of our skills that it's just amazing. We're incredibly fortunate,
1: right? And obviously there's so many people right now who are in incredibly unfortunate circumstances. Yeah. I do, you know, I, I feel like we want to continue to, to capitalize on that. One, you know, for, for the betterment of ourselves and our families, but also to be able to invest in our communities and to help out the folks who are having a really tough time right now. One of the things I've been really happy with in the last few weeks is that my company, Thinkful, we're in the education space. We help to get people into technology.
0: Oh, um, yeah, that's right. What are you guys doing?
1: Yeah, so one of the things that we were able to, to do, and again, kind of going back to that readiness idea, thankfully, mm-hmm. we were ready enough to be able to make a substantial change like this. We've now rolled out a 30 days free for anyone who's been negatively affected by COVID-19. They can get into our, our Flex program and spend the first 30 days, and they, they also get time with mentor, they get the oh, curriculum, wow. they get the full experience, the real deal for the first 30 days. We've also rolled out the ability to have special financing where Mm -hmm. you won't actually pay anything until you have graduated and gotten a job in the field. And then it comes out of that paycheck. I think we talked a little bit about that last time. We've never been able to offer it to our flex students before. We always had to, like full-time students could access that kind of financing, but our flex folks couldn't. And somehow our business people were able to, to run the numbers, figure out how to make this happen so that people who are in a really tough time right now and frankly don't have, you know, the money mm-hmm. to just drop it down and do this schooling, you know, from the very beginning. But that's now accessible to folks who are out of a job with COVID. So it's something that Thinkful is doing in order to try to help. And I'm really proud of my engineering team and the, and the product team for being able to do something that we have never done before. We have never offered a free period. And like right. we had to scramble because you can imagine that the code was not set up to be able to allow for like, you know, somebody who, who hasn't yet paid, and yet they are getting right. full access to the curriculum. And so we were able to turn that around very quickly and offer that to, to the community. And so far, we're really happy to hear the stories of people who've been coming in. You know, we, we asked for a little bit of information about how has COVID affected mm-hmm. you to know that they're eligible for this and heartbreaking stories, but so glad that oh, we're able yeah. to invest in them this way.
0: Well, and the thing that's amazing to me about this, right, is that you know, some people are going to look at it and they're going to go, well, Thinkful's kind of taking advantage of the situation. But the way I see it is that it's a win win, right? It's these people have the opportunity to move into a career, into a space where they're going to be happier, where they have more opportunities, you know, on and on and on. And Thinkful figured out a way to make that work for them, you know. And yeah, Thinkful's going to get paid on the other end, but. I mean, it's a win-win, right? I mean, you all figured out a way that would work for you. And at the same time, these people have this opportunity, especially if you get laid off and you don't get a job for 30 days. I mean, you're getting full-time education, right? Basically for free. And then you pay it off when you wind up getting your job back.
1: Yeah, I'd I'd love to find the business model where we get to do this uh, You know, Oh, I know. Wouldn't everybody? (laughs) Wouldn't everybody? But, but no, I, I love the fact that we, we've done everything that we can, especially on that financing side to align our success with our students' success. Yeah. When our students don't succeed, we don't succeed. And in many, right. like in some of these cases, we don't get paid if they don't yeah. get that job out of our curriculum. Right. And so I love the way that we have been able to align our success with our students' success. They are, they are completely well aligned in parallel. And, and we spend all day thinking, how do we make our students more successful? Because that's, that's how we get uh, success as a company and how we get to keep doing this. And I love the fact that so far we've been able to keep doing this, helping to invest in people's lives.
0: Yeah. Well, and one one other thing out of this that I think is really, and we haven't talked too much about it, but is really important is just hope, right? Mm. sometimes the uncertainty is debilitating, you know, and especially in the sense that I lost my job, you know, I don't have any more money in the bank. I don't know where the next blah, blah, blah is going to come from, right? And then to be able to go, you know, whether it's go through Thinkful's course or whether you go, you know, pick up some courses and, you know, get some skills somewhere else, or you, you know, you go work on that side project that you think is going to show off your skills to a potential employer, or write that book or whatever, is that you can look down the road and you can say, well, this is going to take me to a place that's going to be better. And that's so important. I mean, that's the whole point of those experiments, right? Is that you're hoping that you're going to be put in a situation where you figure something out that works better that eliminates some of the pain down the road. You know, and and to this, you know, I, I just I really, really love the idea behind, hey, you know what? We know where you're at. Here's an opportunity, and yeah, you know, for for all the tangible things that you're going to get out of this training, it's hope, and a lot of times that's all people need. They just need something to hang on to. I mean, I went through some stuff last year that was just awful, hmm. and it, I had a few people reach out to me and just kind of help me through it, and they gave me hope, and it's it's that right. Yep. That's the real power. That's the real. Thing that's going to get people to stick it out, figure it out, and go succeed. And, you know, as much as I'd like to give credit to Thinkful or wherever they're learning their skills, I mean, those folks are doing the work and they're doing it because they believe. And I think the belief is stronger than the training. But at the end of the day, they need the training so that they can go and they can have that opportunity. And I'll, I'll stop preaching now, but I, I just, <laughs> I, I really, I mean, I, I've seen so many people wind up in these weird places and they, they get really down and it's easy to do. And then they find some opportunity and they go chase it and they get that hope. They get that idea that they can be successful. And then the whole world opens up to them and they wind up in a way better place than they ever thought they'd be.
1: Yeah. I think that um, one of the enemies that we have right now, just culturally, I think is like becoming stagnant or feeling stagnant. Uh, It's something that I I fight regularly because, you know, I'm every, (laughs) my wife and I joke because every day feels the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause kind of every day is the same, you know, it's like the, the kids are home every day. <laughs> We're not going anywhere and doing anything like every day kind of feels like the next. And, you know, we started joking about just, or maybe we should just make uh, completely silly things that we do on Monday versus Wednesday or something with the kids, just <laughs> so it feels like a different day. Right. I love it's like, it. It's like spirit week at high school, you know, it's like, all right, pajama Tuesday. Of course. I mean, with COVID every day seems to be pajama Tuesday. But yeah, you know, the, the stagnancy is something that we can fight. It's certainly something that we can fight by trying to take ownership over whatever we, whatever we can, whatever mm-hmm. is in our control. Yeah. And whether that's, uh, you know, investing in some more learning, trying a project, doing something new, what, you know, I actually think the doing of it may even be more important than what actually you get out of it at the end. Yeah. You know, along that hope, just knowing that like we can try things, we can move forward for me personally, it's actually woodworking. That's what's keeping me sane right now is that it's like a a hobby that I've been investing a bit in and have had more opportunity to do. And it's, uh, I'm not awesome at it. Um, Mm I'm getting there, but it's something I, you know, doing something with my hands, doing something creative, you know, being able to do that like in the home and just like knowing that, even if, even if the stuff that I make is awesome or I'm going to throw it in the trash heap, you know, there's a creative process. There's a growth yeah. process, a learning process there. And for me, that, that kind of gives me that hope that you're talking yeah. about. The fact that like, even when things suck around us, there's still ways that I'm able to, to invest and grow and have some fun through this, right? Yep,
0: yeah. I need to go shovel out my garage so I can do that. I mean, I've got stuff all over my table saw and my a ah, yeah, <laughs> miter yeah. saw and everything else—it's uh, a mess. <laughs> but yeah, I'm with you there, and and that's that's the other thing. And you know, with the programming is yeah, that creative side, right? I mean, we're, you're talking about creating stuff with your hands. You know, for me, it's also therapeutic to go work on my car, right? Mm-hmm, sure. But you know, yeah, I mean, it's also therapeutic for me to go build a new app or yeah. things like that, right? And so, yeah, sometimes it is just motion, right? You're just moving. You're just doing something.
1: Yeah. And, and as, uh, as often as I fall trapped to, you know, the, the Netflix or just like, and sometimes, Oh, it's funny. Cause it, it cuts both ways. I was talking to a friend about yeah. this that like, it's also easy to get into a situation like this and have like huge expectations for how you're going to do amazing projects. you're finally going to get around to writing that great American novel or you're finally going to like do all yeah. of this stuff, totally clean your house re- redo your bathroom, and then oh man, you just the energy is sucked from you right and I think along with with the hope also comes. Maybe some compassion, self compassion, as well as compassion for the people around us, to right. also acknowledge that you know what, like now it does suck, and there are opportunities. But at the same time, you know, maybe we don't need to like do all the things right now. Maybe that's not the, the healthiest thing for us. And so, I think understanding and, and like being real with our, ourselves and the people around us of you know where where that expansion is is the right thing versus when a little bit of contraction actually might be mm-hmm. appropriate. And, and frankly, it's probably seasons. It's probably like yep. going back and forth between expansion and contraction that ends up uh, being healthy for us as individuals. It's healthy for our code bases to see expansion yep. and followed by contraction and that regular pattern. It's, it seems to be a regular pattern.
0: Yep, I agree. All right, well, let's go ahead and wrap this up. We've been going for almost an hour. If people want to connect with you online or if they have questions about anything we talked about, where, where do they find you?
1: Yeah, so a great place is chrisjpowers.com. It's mm-hmm. just my homepage. I've got contact information there. I'm Chris J. Powers on Twitter, on GitHub, and all the, the usual places. Right. So yeah, I'd love to,
0: to chat with anybody, reach out. And then I guess the other question is, because I want this information out there for, to help people. If folks are in a position where they think they want to take advantage of what Thinkful's offering for COVID-19 folks, uh, how do they get that? Yeah, so that's going to be
1: uh, www.thinkful.com. And there's a big blue banner across the top that says, okay. you know, it talks about this special opportunity. And so just click on the link there. It'll take you to the COVID page and it'll explain, you know, what, what is available there and kind of how, how that all works. So absolutely, check it out. All right, good deal.
0: All right, well, uh, thank you so much. This has been fun. We'll absolutely, as up. always. I think the next one that I'm doing is Part two with Uncle Bob. We're talking about the Scribe's Oath. Always fascinating. Yeah, it's good stuff. <laughs> All right, well, we'll wrap it up here. And uh, until next time, folks, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by CashFly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CashFly. Visit dot com to learn more.